0: Thursday nights from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. Join us on Blooming Out. Broadcast live from the studios of WFHB, Blooming Out is a weekly public affairs show which engages members of the LGBTQ+, and ally community with news, entertainment, and events. That's Blooming Out, Thursday nights from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. on WFHB. This is listener-supported WFHB, Bloomington, Bedford, Ellettsville, Nashville. Community radio for South Central Indiana, online at wfhb.org. Right now in Bloomington, it's 59 degrees Fahrenheit. There's a 50% chance of rain, but I think it's already raining. Tonight, there's a low of 29 degrees On Friday, there's going to be a winter storm warning, 100% wintry mix, and a high of 30 degrees. And on Friday night, a low of 14. Stay tuned for Blooming Out here on WFHB.
2: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Blooming Out. I'm Frankie Presslaff. I am Rachel Jones. And I'm Alex Ashkin. Thank you for joining us for a new edition of Indiana's only queer public affairs radio show. We conveniently post to wfhb.org, so if you can't listen live, you can hear this and other episodes via the WFHB website.
1: Each and every week, we produce a show by and for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and ally communities. Our listeners can always count on us to cover the most pressing issues, interesting people, and latest events reflecting the TLGBQ life in Indiana, the U.S., and across the world. Our featured stories focus around topics, both at home and abroad.
3: We're taking a look at businesses right to the Rights to deny same-sex couples will be featuring an interview between W F H B News Director Wes Martin, Indiana University Professor Brian Powell.
4: My collaborators, Landon Schnabel and Lauren Abgar, and I were really interested in understanding how does the public think about the denial of service to same-sex couples. We've heard so many different claims about what the denial of service means. We've heard the claim that denial of service is about protection of religious liberty. And we were really interested in finding out to what extent is that true. We also were interested in understanding whether or not people's views about denial of service is about individual businesses, or does it extend to corporations as well? Because the Supreme Court had a case involving Hobby Lobby that indicated that corporations, or what's known as closely held corporations, could have the same rights as individuals and deny things to different people. Finally, we were interested in whether or not people make a clear distinction between people's attitudes regarding denial of service to same-sex couples versus other groups. And we thought the obvious comparison would be interracial couples.
2: And why would that be an obvious comparison? Just
4: a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court was hearing a case about denial of service, in particular denial of service by a bakery to a same-sex couple. And in the discussion in the Supreme Court, people from both sides of the, of the argument were bringing up the question of interracial couples. One side was saying interracial couples, if, they're denied, if, if they shouldn't be denied service, well, then the same sex couples should be treated exactly the same way. The other side said no, there are qualitative differences between the two groups. One reason people make this comparison is if we just go back 50 years ago, interracial couples were denied the same types of maritable, marital rights. The same-sex couples were denied until just two years ago.
2: And can you talk about some of the findings of your study? Uh, we've talked uh, briefly about what it is uh, that your study was looking for. W- what did you end up discovering? We first
4: discovered that Americans do not distinguish between religious reasons and not religious reasons for denial of service. So when we gave a case in which someone denied service, a photographer denied service to a same-sex couple and said, I am doing this because I'm religious and I don't approve a same-sex marriage, people's responses to that question were no different than if the photographer said, I am not religious and I do not approve. Or in other words, despite the claims of many people that this is about religious, quote, freedom, people who believe you should deny service believe you should deny service regardless of whether it's for religious reasons or not. This tells us that at least in the public's view, The debate about denial of service is not about religious liberty or religious freedom. A second finding is that people do distinguish between a self-employed photographer who says he's not going to give service versus a closely held corporation or chain that says it's not going to deny service. In other words, even though the Supreme Court in certain cases have equated corporations or closely held corporations with persons the american public does not the third pattern and we found this pattern to be really surprising is that people's support for denial of service is greater for gay couples than for interracial couples now that is not a surprising finding but the surprising finding for us was across all the different types of scenarios we gave, 40% of Americans, that is close to two-fifths of Americans, said it is okay for a photographer to deny service to interracial couples, a protected class. What it does tell us is that the reasons that the public believes you should deny service has nothing to do with the legal claims that have been given regarding denial of service. Many people have made the argument that denial of service is about religious freedom. Our findings indicate that has nothing to do with the public fear. Many people say that the denial of service by a photographer or a baker is about, you know, uh, denial of of freedom of expression or freedom of artistic expression or freedom of speech, then people in our sample almost never said anything like that. So one thing that our findings tell us is that how the public thinks about these issues it has nothing to do with the types of arguments that have been used legally to justify the denial of service. That's one key point that I think is very important. The other point is It is surprising that so many people do believe you can deny service. It's about evenly split regarding same-sex couples. 53% say you can, 47% say you cannot. I don't think it's necessarily a sign of prejudicial attitudes. In fact, the sample, which is of two thousands of Americans, a a sample representing all different uh, spheres of American life, 60% of the sample was in favor of same-sex marriage. I think that's really important. These were people who were not prejudiced in terms of their views about same-sex marriage, but they do believe that, that at least half of them believe that you can deny service. The reason why people often say you can deny service boils down to this general idea of libertarianism, that American businesses should be able to do what it wants. That in, in fact, the word that they kept on using, and this, uh, this is a word that just kept on popping up, was the word anyone. You can deny service to anyone. In contrast, the people say you can't deny service. Instead, use the word everyone. To them, you need to treat everyone in the same fair manner. Another pattern that we found really surprising in terms of people's justifications is, the, and this was especially true among the people who said the person can deny service, but the respondent also believed was, was in favor of same-sex marriage. They often would say that what the photographer was doing was repugnant in that in, in the, in that, that, he, in that, often people use different language that was much more colorful than that. But they said he has the right to deny service. But in turn, people have the right—the right to boycott the photographer. They have a right to tell other people do not go to the photographer. In other words, for many people, the idea was that people who company or that photographers and other businesses that do discriminatory practices ultimately is going are going to lose out. And it's this view that, in the that it is view that in a market economy, discriminatory practices are not profitable, and people then stop. Now, I think that's a very optimistic and naive view, and most research does not suggest that view is accurate. But it seems to be a key view of many Americans.
2: Dr. Powell, thank you very much for speaking with us.
4: Thank you.
1: We will now be airing an extended interview with Dan Cannon, the 9th District primary candidate. Um, But before we do that, we will bounce around a little bit of what Brian Powell was talking about between us.
2: So I have an interesting question with regards to how we sort of look at this understanding of sort of potential prejudice and discrimination and how it sort of applies to our elected officials. Um, I'm of the belief that Indiana's ninth District is mixed enough uh, sort of political standing-wise that Indiana by itself, or Bloomington by itself, can't carry a Democratic candidate simply on sort of the purity of his Democratic values. Somebody who is, you know, pro-LGBTQ rights, pro uh environmental conservationism, pro gun control and so on. And so I have an interesting question for you both you Frankie and you Rachel. Uh in a sense like is there sort of a happy medium here where they uh, a elected official will protect the rights of the LGBTQ community but still sort of share enough common values with other Hoosier voters that they want to go out and campaign for him or put his name down when they're in, you know, they're at the ballot box, you know. I I think
1: you have to be careful, Alex, that you don't mix um, issues. I think LGBT is one thing. I think gun control is another thing, and people in the LGBT community may not all stand in the same place on all of these issues. So I I think for a candidate to say, well, I'm going to appease everybody and I'll accept LGBT issues, but not gun control or gun control, um, I, I don't think we can mix everything like that. I think... They're going to have to take a stand on LGBT rights, on whatever they feel about gun control, and and draw people from each segment of these communities that they're able to get a hold of.
2: I guess the interesting question there is, and I completely understand the idea to take it on an issue-by-issue, case-by-case basis, right. but is it possible to kind of build a large enough coalition of Indiana voters, people who are— you know, primarily concerned about LGBTQ rights, people who are primarily concerned about growing the local economy and so on. Um, I guess my question is to a certain degree, what is the best way to bring these folks who might have disparate views together to support, you know, what we might find is our best candidate for the district?
1: Redraw the district. It's been so gerrymandered that I think... The majority of the people are one-issue people, so they may be a gun control person, or they may be a, an abortion rights person, and anything else they might not even look at. And, and we're so gerrymandered, um, you you know, we need to be one vote counts in, instead of so party oriented. But it's it's designed to be a cluster
3: right and I think having a little faith in the voters as well understanding that we're not a one you know people aren't always a one issue voter depends on your family Frankie well it (laughs) depends on your family but at the same time I mean as a you know a gay man I'm I I definitely look at the gay issues that that will affect me and will will voice my my thoughts and opinion you know about a candidate on, on how they come off but at the same time I'm looking at you know taxes I'm looking at you know I'm going to say this, you know, family value, <laughs> family values, and, you know, in um, the extent of, of what I'm looking for in a candidate that can support my family and the neighbor's family. Um, so I look, you know, gun control, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a gun advocate, but at the same time, I believe that people have a right to to bear arms and, and that sort of thing. And, and basically kind of looking at where, how that person leans far left or right, you know, I, I kind of vote in the center when I'm looking at issues and especially in, 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 in these types of elections, Um, you know, and I, and I, uh, hopefully we'll have, we'll have faith in, in the people coming around this time. I mean, this is going to be a very different election in a lot of ways that people on both sides understand how important it is to vote. And it's, it'll be interesting to see what issues are, are actually going to, you're looking at me. No, only because— <laughs> You're giving no, me that look. <laughs> I,
1: I, I, Sorry, Frankie. No, I totally agree. But, okay. but we have to learn how to talk to each other. And, and, right. and Dan Cannon, we talked about this a little bit uh, that you'll hear later in the interview. But everybody, the right and left, um, conservative, liberal, hear two different news feeds. So their information is all based—if you listen to Fox— it is very right-wing, and if you listen to NPR or FHB, it would be more right, left-wing. Right, but we're going to
3: be lo- listening, looking at more local issues on this mm-hmm. one. This mm-hmm. isn't going to be necessarily coming from Fox News you know, Nation. This is going to be coming from the Herald Times. This is going to be coming from, you know— Indy Star. Right, Indy Star.
1: No, but the big issues are still— Fox News, and I mean, there's, there's, they're,
3: they're going to be feeding on that, but I, you know, this is, uh, in the sense, I don't, it'll be interesting to see how the the national press covers us, you know, because the mm-hmm. ninth district can be an interesting district at times, but, um, you know, I, I think that it, it will be a little more homegrown and home spend, and, and that, um, sense that we're, we'll we'll have more of an advantage maybe. And I'm talking who's we, Um, (laughs) me, (laughs) Um, of just having people being able to, um, I think, you know, have have a better idea of, of how this this candidate affects them than maybe a Trump affects them.
2: Yeah, I think there's sort of like an interesting question as to what sort of issues will kind of take the forefront. As you were saying, Frankie. I think a lot of times people expect leadership out of their elected officials, so there's going to be an interesting question both along what issues do become sort of the uh, staging point of the election and where these narratives are sort of based around, and additionally, What candidates are going to do to sort of propose solutions or propose ways to progress on these issues, propose ways to, you know, protect the rights of individuals like, you know, in the case of denial of service?
1: I wonder. I mean, it's premature, but um, look what happened in Alabama. Mm -hmm. And... um, it became a national – Alabama became a national spotlight, and I think this is a really hotly contested seat, probably the most hotly contested seat in Indiana as far as Democrat or Republican. Um, uh, it, it, it may well become Donald yeah, yeah. Trump supporting
3: Trey Hollingsworth. Yeah, I mean we might Trey see Hollingsworth. him flying in here, and mm-hmm. that's definitely possible.
2: It is quite possible. We're
3: going to open this up to a short discussion. Sorry, second one. Sorry guys, I'm <laughs> just throwing some new notes. We're going to have to put this conversation on hold as we take a look at this uh, this week's community calendar.
0: Coming up is Suavemente, a benefit for Puerto Rico. Come to the back door on Friday, January twelfth, starting at ten PM for a Latinx variety show to benefit the victims of Hurricane Maria. The event will include several performers like J.J. Suede and Lola Lavavicious. Donations are suggested. For more information, check the calendar section at the Backdoors website at bckdoor.com. Also, the Bloomington Pride Film Festival is coming up. The 2018 Bloomington Pride Film Festival explores the lives and experiences of the LGBTQ community through feature length and short films and live performances that advocate community wide attitudes of awareness, acceptance and appreciation of diversity. The event will be held from Thursday, January 25th to Saturday, the 27th at the Buskirk Chumley Theater. Check BloomingtonPride.org backslash events for more details. Spencer Pride will be hosting a workday for their new Unity Center on Monday, January 15th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Workdays are also held every Wednesday and Saturday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now back to Blooming Out here on WFHB.
1: We now present our recent interview with Democratic candidate Dan Cannon. Cannon has been making waves after his court success arguing the landmark Supreme Court case... Obgerfell versus Hayes. Cannon now has his sights set on Washington, D.C., but he first has to run against Liz Watson for the Democratic nomination to face Trey Hollingsworth in the general elections this November. Welcome to Blooming Out. I am Rachel Jones. Today we have Dan Cannon with us. He's running for the 9th District Congressional seat. Um, welcome, Dan. Hi, thanks for having me.
3: Welcome. So we uh, why don't we just start out the show by uh, you kind of telling
5: us who you are and um, how you got into this. Yeah. <laughs> how, did, how did you get yourself into this yeah. mess, he says. No, I, I uh, am a civil rights lawyer from New Albany, um, and uh, you know, I don't know how much of the backstory you want. Um, You know, I I, uh, grew up in southern Indiana in Henryville and a little bit in Scottsburg and a little bit in New Albany. And that's kind of where I um, have landed, have lived all over the, you know, what we call the deep south of the district. Uh, The uh, son of a single mom um, and uh, went to school at New Albany High School and then dropped out when I was a junior. And uh, so I've had a little bit of an unconventional career path. Um, I spent a lot of time as a musician uh professional musician working musician and and uh music teacher and um got my g e d eventually and uh put myself through college i 'm the first person in my family to graduate college um and decided that I kind of liked this college thing and I was doing okay with it and so i, I figured i 'd uh, really torture myself and go to law school uh despite the fact that i don 't think that I had ever had a conversation with a lawyer at the point in time that I, I signed up to go. Um, and then, you know, when I got out, I wanted to, um, uh, be able to give back to my community in some sort of meaningful way. And so I went into civil rights and doing lots of employment discrimination type stuff. And that sort of, um, gradually morphed into doing more what we would call constitutional litigation. So first amendment stuff, uh, police brutality cases, inmates rights cases. And, um, you know, in, in doing that work, I was fortunate enough to, uh, and uh, we filed the first marriage equality case in Indiana, and I ended up uh, on the Kentucky team. And that Kentucky case went to the United States Supreme Court. It's the case that people know as Obergefell versus Hodges that resulted in marriage equality in all 50 states. We went right from that to um, the Kim Davis litigation, if you guys know anything about right. that. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so that that actually is still going on. That's still it's the case that won't die. Um, and so, you know, those are those, that's some of the, the high profile stuff that I've been involved in. You know, we sued Trump, um, when he was still on the campaign trail for uh, white supremacist violence. And so, you know, it, it had a couple of those, those, uh, newsmakers. Uh, but really I've just, uh, sort of been, you know, working, um, for the folks that don't have a voice in our community and trying to give them a voice in the civil and criminal justice systems.
3: Was there one, situation or moment that kind of like, you know, I need, I need to do something, you know, you're obviously doing a lot, but <laughs> more than a lot of folks, but you know, something that, you know, just, it just, there was that kind of at night or a conversation with your wife and you just said, you know, I mean, how, how did you lead up to that point of just saying, I'm
5: going to run? You know, uh, when you're a lawyer that, that cares about social issues, um, people sort of encourage you to run, or they they expect that you right. have political ambitions, right? And I never did. I uh, was never particularly interested in running for office. I'm not like, you know, you see me sitting here, I'm a bald guy with a goatee. I'm not like the sort of classically handsome, polished politician you can right. tell from talking right. to me, too. You know, and uh, and and I've been divorced and remarried, and I'm a high school dropout, and all this stuff that that politicians don't do, you know, in addition to the casework that we've already talked about. And I think 2016, it, you know, no matter how you look at it, was a referendum on the status quo. I mean, it's like the great etch-a-sketch of American politics has been picked up and shaken, and we, there's no rules now, and people want um, something different. You know, I think they don't want status quo politicians. They want something, you know, that that, that feels more real, something that is a little more um, relatable, um, and I like to think that I, I've got that. Uh, but But as you say... You know it was really more of a sense of um uh, you know me uh, coming to the conclusion that i think a lot of people came to after 2016 is that whatever it is you're doing you need to step up and do more right we need to do something to salvage american democracy because i think you know it's 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 in previous election cycles i think it would have been um hyperbole or at least borderline hyperbole to say american democracy is really in crisis I don't think it's hyperbolic anymore. I don't think it's. I don't think it's an exaggeration. I think that's really where we are at this point in time historically, and I think it's incumbent on people who care about their communities and who care about, you know, people um, and care about their country and care about democracy to step up and do more. And so this is a way I can do that.
1: I really liked um, reading your history. Um, pretty inspirational. Dropping out of high school, playing music. Um, Back to particular things. Was there a particular moment when you were doing that? You said that helped you relate to people and make you want to get involved. Expound on that a little bit.
5: Yeah. Um, you know, when you are um, – I've, I've been fortunate enough to have this sort of uh, – to, to, to be involved in career paths that sort of give you a backstage pass to life, right? You know, being a lawyer is like that. I think in a lot of ways being a politician, God help me, that's what I am now. Um, is like that, you know, and, and being a musician is like that. And so, you know, when I, when I, um, was a dumb kid that didn't care about anything else but myself, and I started playing lots of music and teaching lots of lessons and, you know, spending a lot of one-on-one time with people and playing in bars. And, you know, when you're playing the bars, you play in clubs and stuff like that. And you're almost like, almost like another bartender, right? People want to connect with you and they want to tell you about what's going on in their lives. You know, it's a really good way to connect with people playing music. Um, and and I think I learned to care about other people and to care about things that were bigger than myself through that process. Um, and I wanted to parlay that into something that, you know, would allow me to give back to my community. You know, going to, to college, I got more involved in activism and, you know, um, um, particularly against the George W. Bush administration and against the Iraq war. Um, and, you know, I did not come out of my college experience thinking that I was going to end up a trial lawyer. I mean, I kind of just thought that I'd go to work for some nonprofit organization or something. I certainly never thought that I'd be running for Congress or something stupid like that, right? Uh, but but that's what ended up happening. I think the best things in life um, often happen by accident. So,
1: Do you have in mind some of the things that you would like to change? Um, I think our system is broken, really. I, I, I question whether we're a democracy, but maybe you can change my mind with that, become elected, and, and, and change some things that need change. But term limits, um, gerrymandering, so many things need dealt with. Would you give us a list of some of the things you would like to tackle?
5: Well, uh, people can go to my website, which is right. canonforindiana.com. No, I, you know, and, and we've tried to make a comprehensive list of all the stuff. And we, you know, I sat down um, early on in the campaign and said, all right, well, what's what's a list of, like, you know, just the sort of aspirational things right, that we want out of, you know, ideally, what do, what do we want out of America? What is America in our, our you know, the America of our wildest dreams, what does that look like, you know, 25 years from now? Um, I think a lot of it starts with campaign finance reform. That's a big deal. And you mentioned term limits, and people ask me about term limits all the time. I mean, I think the first building block of that is campaign finance. Because you, you know, look at somebody like, like Lee Hamilton, who was in office here for 34 years did a great job and then contrast that with somebody like Mitch McConnell you know who started off okay and has become the sort of evil wizard right and, and and I mean I think that if you have good people in office for a long time that can be a, a very positive thing um, if you have people that are utterly corrupted um, and the system let's face it lends itself to that because of the influence of money in politics um, then obviously that's a bad thing. So I think you, I think you start there. I mean, I think really um, if I had, you know, one, uh, if I had a magic lamp and I could make one wish for, you know, what we could do with the American political system, it would be total campaign finance overhaul, um, especially now having been in it for the last year or so and seeing how that sausage is really made. Um, you know, it's like, I think most people, you get out and talk to them. And they understand that the influence of money on American politics is bad. You know, it's just have a general sense that it's really, really bad. Until you get into this process and you see how much it infects everything. And I say infects, not affects. It infects everything in the entire process. Um, you know, it, it it is very bad. However bad you think it is, it's worse. Uh, so, I mean, I, I would start there. Of course, the, you know, healthcare um is 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 a major priority it should be a major priority for anybody that's seeking elected office at a national level right now um you know we're lagging so far behind the rest of the world in that we've got to do something with it uh the opioid crisis something a little bit closer to home uh is something that you know is 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 frustrating because that and i I could go off on a thousand different tangents here but i mean the, the opioid crisis is an example of something that if we would invest a little bit of time and money, we could make huge, huge differences. We could save countless lives on this. I mean, the, the solutions are difficult; they're not going to be easy to implement, but the, they are nonetheless dangling right in front of us. There are things that we can reach out and grab. What would you do initially
3: that you're not seeing done to rectify or you know stop? What's, what's happening
5: specifically on yeah. opioid well i mean i think it's it's a matter of striking both at the branches of the problem and striking at the root of the problem right so uh you know striking at the branches is harm reduction strategies okay so making sure that you know we just did a narcan training up here in bloomington we're getting ready to do one in um in, in our office in in clarksville and one of our office in greenwood at the end of the month and um, that stuff is a miracle drug. I mean, you, you, if, if the availability of Narcan is going to save tens of thousands of lives. But most people don't know it's out there. They don't know it exists. They don't know, you know, how to. If they saw somebody overdosing, they wouldn't know how to use it, even if they had it available. Um, so so simple education programs and then the availability of, you know, uh, of, of naloxone, the widespread availability of naloxone is, is um, one thing that we can do to sort of abate the harm, but I think you know going deeper and looking at it um, just on a fundamental level, we've got to take the idea of addiction out of the criminal justice box that it's been for so long and put it where it belongs, which is in the public health box and so once you start attacking. The opioid crisis as though it's a public health problem and not a criminal justice problem and not a moral failing which is the way that you know still even people on the left want to look at it because we've just been so conditioned to do that um i i I think that that's where we start to look at at um serious reform you know from the roots of the problem up uh so it it's it's access to health care it's access to mental health services early i mean most of the time when people are the first treatment that they have for addiction of any kind is through the criminal justice system. Um, that's a mistake, but I mean, of course, mo- you know, most people are not. Do you have able numbers on like money? addiction therapy? Sorry, no. It's um, good. Go ahead. Do you have um,
3: you know uh, you know numbers out there as far as what we're spending, you know, in Indiana on the
5: opioid Opioid crisis at this time, but not off the top. As of my far head. as yeah. so, yeah, as yeah, far as those numbers are are out there, but I mean, it's a situation like many situations in the United States where we're being penny wise and pound foolish. Right, right. right. Uh, that was my point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, and you um, know, dumping it into there.
3: So, how about like bridging like the middle class? I know that's another one that you're, you know, it was kind of Trump's big, you know. Thing going in and with the na- nation and in Indiana and people are looking at, and I think the the middle class is kind of looking left and right trying to figure out you know who who's going to help us you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. where where are you you know wh- where's your thoughts on, on that as far as how your campaign will uh, be able to to work with the middle class that you know they're they're not doing now.
5: Well, yeah, I mean the middle class is to the extent that there is a middle class, right? I mean the middle class is vanishing. And we have been fed this line for a very long time now, 30 or 40 years, during the entire period during, during which the, the middle class has essentially dried up in the United States, that if we somehow funnel more money to the top,
3: mm-hmm.
5: that you know, it's going to, get, it's going to, to somehow um, you know, uh, invigorate the middle class, that it's going to grow the middle class, that people are going to have more in the middle and at the bottom. And what we see consistently over and over and over again is that it doesn't work, and yet that myth persists. I mean, you you hear it um, in discussion over the tax bill, right? Even though you've got virtually no reputable economist that says this is gonna result in any sort of um, boon to the middle class, you've still got an entire party and a substantial segment of the population that thinks that if we make rich people richer, that it's going to somehow help poor people. It has never worked. It will never work. Um, and I think that the best thing that we can start to talk about doing is investing directly in the middle class and, and stop with the Pennywise and Pound Foolish strategies. You take that money and put it directly in the middle class. Increase wages, uh, protect pensions, provide people with health care, that sort of thing, uh, to where you're not expecting it to just flood down in some sort of organic man- you know, manner uh from the top to the bottom it doesn't work
3: how about um on kind of the gblt you know issues i mean that's you know, obviously something that we're focusing T- in on T-
1: TBLG, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be paranoid little. about my accent. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> all of us are. You know, I can never.
3: It changes from year to year to month to month.
5: Yeah.
3: Um, so, where do you, you know, as far as you know, that's you know, kind of a population that we're <laughs> talking to directly. Um,
5: yeah, that's a population I care about very dearly.
3: Uh, so, yeah. where do you, where are you going to make a difference for that community, the GBLT community or LGBT community? Sorry, Frankie. You got me all over the I'm going to start something. I'm going to get off the emails. Let's assume every letter (laughs) applies and the
5: pluses and everything else. So, yeah, um, no, I I, I think that if this slate of candidates gets in the real progressives, and there's a lot of exciting candidates all over the country right now. Um, and if we really have the tsunami that we we hope we 're going to have in two thousand and eighteen there 's a very good chance that we finally break through this twenty year barrier of 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 not being able to get employment and housing protections passed uh, for LGBTQ plus individuals right um, so that is a big deal, and then holding the wolves at bay from this whole um, religious freedom you know and I say that with scare quotes, and you can 't see the scare quotes on the radio. But 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 the idea that you know which is which is really religious imposition. I mean, holding those wolves at bay is going to be an important uh, role for legislators as well.
1: Isn't that going to be so difficult now with the Johnson Amendment being repealed that um, churches can now give to political candidates? I think it will only destroy what we've gained so far.
5: Yeah, I, I you know. Um, that remains to be seen i you know i i I do not have particular i mean i think that there are diversity of opinions about what that um, the gutting of the johnson amendment would do uh and and you know i'm not particularly optimistic about it myself but i think that goes back to the earlier point about campaign finance more than it does anything else Um, i think if we get the right people elected in 2018 Employment and housing protections are coming that are long, long overdue at the federal level. I mean, you have um, you know very few states, and not Kentucky and Indiana. Kentucky and Indiana, both have um, virtually no protections. You, you've got to do it city by city, as you both know. Right. Um, and, and that doesn't help you know our brothers and sisters that are out in the rural parts. Uh, and that's there. That's a lot of people in the ninth district. Um, so those federal protections would make a huge difference. Um, and then just making sure that we don't you know go anywhere with these sort of draconian riffra's bathroom laws yeah well that's that's part and parcel of that you
3: know. mm. on that so um what do you see your campaign you know just if you can just kind of hone in on what you guys are you know as far as the gbl community again we're gonna hone in on that as far as um the changes that you would like to see immediate or where people are talking to you about what are things that you're hearing out on the campaign um, trail right now from the GBLT community, our LGBT community um, out right now um, with frustrations or things that they're scared about or, you know, that, you know, that woken you up and it's like, you know, you're, you're out there and you're, probably far ahead of a lot of people of kind of knowing what's out there. But now that you're knocking on doors and you're talking to Joe and Mary and, you know, whoever, um, what are they telling you?
5: Well, you know, I I don't know that um, other than the employment and and housing protections that I mentioned already, I don't know that that um, and keeping the riffers at bay, I don't know that there's anything in particular that I can say, you know, LGBT uh, gay men and lesbians and trans people have these um, this this particular set of issues that I mean you know the issues that affect them are the the, the, the issues that affect all of us right everybody. you know it's why like when people ask me about well, well what about the rural voters how are you going to reach the rural voters right. I mean, well, there's no such thing as a rural voter right it was like we're all people and we're all here in the same district and I, you know I I mean I get the distinction but you know everybody needs education and everybody needs health care and everybody needs you know a safe environment to live in and so all those things and and what we have right now is a Congress that is not focused on any of those things, not any of the basic real people problems, you know, the real problems that real people are actually going through in the 9th District, these are not being addressed by Representative Hollingsworth or by a vast majority of this Congress that we've got now. And I think that's, that's a mistake. You've got, and this goes back again to the problem of money and politics, where you've got, you know, uh, a, a whole gobs and gobs of money that got people like Hollingsworth elected, where they can essentially just buy uh, a seat in Congress. And so they get there and all they wanna do is solve rich people problems. And and to be fair, that's probably all that Rep. Hollingsworth knows uh, is rich people problems. He's not ever had to live hand to mouth. He's not ever had to do the kind of stuff that normal people have to do and deal with those real people problems like I get to hear about from all all kinds of people of all stripes every day. Um, and, and so as, as such, he's got very little incentive. He and the rest of Congress have got very little incentive to solve those problems. And I think that that's got to change.
1: It, it seems so dark to me to be able to turn the tide on all this. I think, you know, Southern Indiana, we had the mayor of Bloomington on, I don't know, a few segments ago, and it was, it was was a great interview, but he said that Bloomington is a blueberry in, in a bowl of tomato soup. (laughs) And that's true. But being down in southern Indiana, where you are, I, I still think public sentiment, every place I have been, is so much better towards me than, than it ever has been before. And, and we have legions to go, don't misunderstand. But, but I'm so afraid politically from the top that they are going, they're, they're attempting, in, in my opinion, to, to turn that around. Um. So having somebody that is truly opened and, God, I don't even, even want to say liberal, just real would be such a benefit to the pglb community (laughs)
4: i'm
1: back and forth
5: yeah no i mean i think i think that 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 you hit the nail right on the head i mean you have to have i mean what we are dying for in congress and what we are dying for from our elected officials is to have real people who understand real problems and are really willing to work with their constituents to solve those problems i mean we need to come up with solutions here in indiana and take those back to washington and not the other way around
1: gerrymandering Mm -hmm. thoughts on how to change what has happened i I don't know if most people have seen a map um and obviously this is radio so there's nothing we can show but it is cut up worse than a jigsaw puzzle really (laughs) imagine
5: (laughs) if you will dear listener the most you know uh abstract and heinous looking thing That yeah no i mean that's that's uh that's what we're dealing with i i have some confidence that um, the most powerful man in the country, Justice Kennedy, is gonna is gonna come through for us on this case that's that's pending. And I mean, if this if there's a decision issued by the time this goes to air, and it's and I'm wrong, then just edit this part out. But I mean, I I am confident that uh, pretty confident that Papa Kennedy is going to um, shoot down uh, at least to an extent partisan gerrymandering. Um, in this case, that's currently pending from Wisconsin. Um, who knows, you know? But that that is going to be a real game changer, and then we're going to have to figure out where to go um, from there. You know, I, I think that um, short of that, uh, we're in a lot of trouble with gerrymandering because I think that you know, as much as it is cast as a bipartisan issue, there is very little willingness on a bipartisan. From what I'm hearing from lawmakers in Indiana. Uh, There is very little willingness to make any real progress on this um, at the state level, which is really where it needs to happen.
3: How about your, um, just to change a little bit of topics, but how about women's rights? I know you haven't been really shy about, you know, where you stand on that. And I think, uh, you know, this is an opportunity to let the listeners know kind of where where you do stand on that and what they can expect from you as a candidate.
5: Yeah, I I mean – That's that's a very broad topic. I mean, is there is is there something specific that well, abortion we're talking about? Yeah, Yeah. talking about abortion rights. Yeah, Um, yeah. Look, I I mean, I I support a woman's right to choose. I mean, full stop. Um, And I don't think that that is something that we should shy away from talking about. Um, There are always going to be one issue voters that um, you know think that. The only solution that, and and the polling is faulty on this to begin with, but um, there are going to be one issue voters that um, believe that abortion should be criminalized. And if you say all abortion should be criminalized and there are all sets of circumstances, and if you don't agree with that, then they're not going to vote for you. We don't get those voters. Um, you know, I am not going to get those voters, and I know that and i 'm not suffering under any illusion about that and and that 's why we have elections fine right you know um, I think that 's a small portion of the population is why I say that the, the polling is somewhat deceptive about this, and they and Planned Parenthood don 't got very good numbers about this that um, it, you know at least in certain circumstances, um, you know somewhere around seventy percent of the population is in favor um, of abortion uh of some kind right and in and or they support a woman's right to choose i I guess is a better way to say that um and so i don't think it's a topic that that you know we need to hide our heads in the sand on um especially not when you know people are 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 craving honesty from politicians Um, they don't want to hear politician weasel words they don't want us to you know they don't want to uh, they don't want us to to just throw rhetoric at them. We, 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 I mean, most people want you to talk about how you really feel um, about an issue and what you really think about. And have honest discourse and dialogue uh, with people about the issues that are really, really important to them. And, you know, not only do we do ourselves a disservice on a visceral level by not talking about those things, because people know when you're being dishonest. And people in Indiana, by and large, don't like that. Um, but... You know, we also never get the opportunity to, to, if we don't engage with voters on that stuff, we don't ever get the opportunity to explain to people why we believe we are right. Um, you know, and, and, and I think we we on the left do ourselves a, a dramatic disservice by doing that because, I mean, I would not be out here campaigning and I would not be out here talking about this stuff if, if I didn't think it was good policy. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that we have a long way to go with messaging on this this particular topic uh, but by and large, there's just
3: so much misinformation. There's a lot of, yeah. And, it, you know, and it, it changes. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, whoever's putting it out. And it's just to stay on top of that and explain to people just simple biology. Yeah. Um, it
5: gets so complicated on that. Um, but, but it's simple enough to say, too, that look, we've got a demonstrated, I mean, Democrats, the left, has got a demonstrated track record, progressives have got a demonstrated track record of policies that, when they are implemented, reduce unwanted pregnancies. Plain and simple. Simple as that, right? And so, if that's really what you're shooting at, is fewer abortions, right? right? That's really the target that you're shooting at. And that's the thing, you know, we do that better. You know, we actually do that better. So, if that is the number one item on your agenda, then you should vote Democrat right putting
3: money you know putting it back into education you know start at the ground floor and that's where people we miss out on yep. you know we yep. we're we're not looking at you know educate folks and let them understand how things work and you know i think we do a horrible job with you know funding you know the, the agencies that need to go out there and educate people because people are afraid to talk but then when you know someone gets pregnant we're not afraid to talk
5: yeah and
3: yep. you know it's, it's so important to you know get that out, and I think you know i've just as I watch over the years of you know it's back and forth up and down, and you know, wh- whoever's in charge is you know stomping it down and pushing it up, and it's just the inconsistency of it and it it just seems like a simple simple fix in so many ways, but you know we we like to make things complicated um and on that note, how you know um just looking at uh gun violence you know is another hot topic, obviously
5: I'm going to hit them all <laughs> um. <laughs> you guys are uh, what what you all can't see is that they're actually turning the heat up in the studio <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. gradually turning the heat up and, yeah, as we sit here, there so. we go yeah. so in you know in uh, in you know Indiana being you know a, a big gun state um where do you where do you sit on that yeah. and uh, I, I I am not what you would call anti gun um certainly anti gun violence, and I think that you know it's another one of those things that 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 we we have got to do something about. Um, and we can't continue to do nothing, you know, and right now what Congress is doing is nothing. You know, uh, I think Hollingsworth, uh, advanced a bill that would make it easier for people to put silencers on their guns. You know, that that's not helping, uh, advanced a bill that made it easier for sheriff's deputies to carry their, their weapons in the federal courthouses. Okay fine, you know. Um, But what are we really doing to strike at the root of gun violence? I mean, I I think first and foremost, we've got to get rid of that disastrous um, Dickey Amendment from the 90s, which essentially cut short uh, the CDC's ability to do any meaningful research into the root causes of gun violence. It's not clear to me that it's simply the proliferation of weapons and it shouldn't be clear to anybody, frankly, that it's not that it's that it's simply the proliferation of weapons that leads to gun violence. I think that's too simplistic, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, it, it's 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 quite true when we say we're not coming for your guns. I don't. I mean, I don't think that a strategy like that, where you're going to go and collect everybody's guns, nobody's ever really seriously talked about it, and I don't think it would work. Um, but I do think some basic common sense stuff, right? You know, first and foremost get that research to happen, get real meaningful research into the root causes of gun violence to happen. Um, Universal background checks should be a no-brainer. I've never talked to a gun owner that disagrees with that, right, on a fundamental level. Um, You know, basic um, access to mental health services would go a long way here again, you know, to solving a lot of the problems that we've been talking about for the last hour. Um, and, And I think, you know, just having some sort of minimal um firearms competency and and safety um evaluation um would be uh, you know also very helpful uh, so you'd actually
3: you know you would suggest that they actually take a course before they're allowed to, yeah, I mean, have I license. think, yeah,
5: I, I, something like that. I mean, I think that there's got to be Do some think, sort of like minimal safety, um, you know, uh, something to assess whether or not you know a person is going to be able to safely own a gun, and it could be minimal, but I mean, you know, somebody is going to be able to safely own a gun that is not going to fall into the hands of a toddler that's going to shoot themselves. Right.
3: Like, so know. stricter laws. Or I mean there's so many laws out, and you know, and it's like i don't you write a law on top of a law, but what what does again does that solve? I think it goes back to the education component of it you know yeah. i, yeah. I have, you know, family members and friends. And um, I actually worked in an office one time that I with eight people and I was the only one that didn't carry. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm around it. It's it's not my thing, but I, I'm around it. Yeah. And, you know, it's when you have those conversations um, with people that love their guns. And you know, and these are good people, and these are trustworthy people. No, I, mean, these I, mean, are... I have a license. Right, I, right. I do carry. <laughs> right, you know, so, right. And,
5: and, and so I'm not against it. Okay. Um, necessarily, it, 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 you know, from a from a sort of philosophical perspective. But having teachers
3: um, carrying guns, um,
5: you know, when you I go, I don't, on... I don't think the answer is more guns. Okay. Right. Yeah. I don't. I certainly don't think that. And I, 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 it's not clear to me that the root cause is that we have too many guns floating around out there. Although obviously, I think we do. Um, but is that it, what is that is what is that what is causing um, all the gun violence in America? Uh, no, I don't think so. You know, but we don't really know. We don't have any meaningful right. research or information about that. And I think that really is the root of the problem. If we can, if we would allow there to be meaningful research and meaningful, you know, information about what is at the root of this, and then then we can start working on meaningful solutions.
1: Uh, another heavy topic that we never seem to talk about, but I think it's probably the most pressing issue that we face as a planet um, mm-hmm. climate change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it real? <laughs> Fake news. Yes, it's real. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Thank God. That, that is, yes, it's
5: real. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the big thing in the news today is that uh, New York is is divesting from all these fossil fuel companies and they're suing them for, you know, over climate change. And I think that's great. And I think that's the direction that we have to go. Is, you you is see towards, more states jumping yeah, on that one. We, well, you know, um, let's hope. Uh, California, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, maybe, maybe not, but you know, and I've been pleasantly surprised at the litigation that's been going on against the pharmaceutical companies, you know, pertaining to the opioid crisis. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, But, but, yeah, so, so, um, I think that that's a step in the right direction, and ending subsidies for fossil fuel companies is 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 a big deal. Investing in renewable energy, uh, a big deal, and and you know looking at how are we going to repair the damage that's already been done right you know and again putting some dollars into meaningful research so we're not spending you know a ton on the back end not being pennywise and pound foolish um, you know investing some real money into you know how do we how do we undo this you know how do we get some of the carbon out of the atmosphere how do we you know make meaningful um, um, you know improvements or how do we make how do we meaningfully heal the environment the damage that we've already done
1: when I was a kid, um, and I'm old, but every—you drive through the country, every farmhouse had a windmill. Is, is there a way to divest from big industry and allow—give tax abatements for people to have a windmill and to have— you know, it, it's great, Then they made a big play that the airport in Indianapolis is now a big solar field, and that's fine. But that's still giving control to a huge corporation that can then make donations to people. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to have my own, and I want to be able to afford it. And I think it's artificially high. One, we don't make them here. You're right. Um, How do we bring the industry here Mm -hmm. and make it affordable that we can, beyond being a tree hugger, go off the grid if we want to and still partake in society? Yeah. Um, I don't know.
5: <laughs> I don't know all okay. the answers to that, but I will say that I think you're talking about two separate things, right? And one is the environmental component, which is over here, absolutely. And then, and then there's there's anti-monopol, you know, anti-monopoly legislation, which is over here, which I think should be a top priority of anybody that's running on the left, right, or anybody that's running at all um, is is is. Busting up big corporations and busting up big business—it's something that is that is creating, I'm saying that in a very crude way, but it, you know, anti-monopoly legislation, which is more complicated than just busting up the big guys, um, is something that that has fallen by the wayside for the last seventy or eighty years, and we're really feeling the effects of it now. Especially mom and pop shops are feeling the effects of it now, um, and it's it's something that we have to get back on track with.
1: More than that, even I'm talking about individual. Individuals being able to do this. I mean, look at Puerto Rico right now. What, 40% of the people have power after, Mm -hmm. when did that happen? Over a month ago. That was well over a month ago. What if all those people had a solar panel? Mm -hmm. This this would be a complete non-issue. we're we're so backwards on on, on how we do things. Yeah, I think. Yeah.
5: Well, I mean, you know, it's it, it is going to be a. Uh, unfortunately, um, it looks right now like it's going to be a slow crawl to renewables, but the crawl is is happening. Um, you know, again, get the right people in office, and we can accelerate that process a little faster, I and mean, we desperately need it.
3: So we're going to have to wrap up shortly. But what would be like the 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 one thing that you know if you get elected and you're in, if, you know you're going what, what is the, the the one topic that um you think that all Hoosiers um you know are 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 saying hey help or this is you know what we want this is where we want to see changes immediately
5: yeah uh from a from a legislative perspective it's it healthcare everybody's talking about healthcare everywhere um from you know a purely practical perspective Um, you know, people like to ask you, you know, what's your first thing that you're going to, what's the first piece of legislation you're going to work on when you get in office? Well, look, you know, I don't know what's going to happen six weeks from now, you guys, you know, let alone, um, you know, six months or, 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 um, in early 2019, where we're going to be as a society. Uh, but I will say that, that one major priority, well, my top priority is going to be to establish a robust constituent services program, um, with offices that are easily accessible to people here in the Ninth District. Um, we've started doing that already. We've got an office in Clarksville, we've got an office in Bloomington, we've got an office in Greenwood. We're doing trainings out of there, you know, we're doing, uh, we're, we're providing public services out of those offices. Um, and I think it's really important that people have access to their elected officials, meaningful access to their elected officials, and that they know that their um, government is responsive and accountable to them and I think having a constituent services program on the ground in the ninth district is something that we sorely need and we've been sorely lacking in for a very long time
3: yeah I personally would love to see that happen mm-hmm. where you can actually go and talk to somebody and and feel that you're you're being heard and, and somebody's working for you um, we then,
5: need it and that's how we that's how we keep seats right that's how we keep seats I mean if you talk to congressmen of both sides of the aisle Congress people on both sides of the aisle that have been very successful in um, you know, keeping their seats and not have to worry about you know, every single election cycle, whether or not they're going to get knocked out. Um, it's because they've built good constituent services program. I think it's critical. Right.
1: Dan, thank you for coming on the air with us. Thanks yeah, we y'all. really appreciate yeah, it. I
5: appreciate you having me.
1: For Blooming Out, I am Rachel Jones.
3: And I'm Frankie Pressline.
1: Have a beautiful evening. Good night. It looks like that's time, uh, that time of night again, we bring things to an end. Let's take a moment to thank our interview guest, Democratic Party candidate Dan Cannon. Additionally, thank you to all of our listeners and volunteers who make this possible.
3: Blooming Out is produced by Alec, Alex Ashkin. Our executive producer is WFHB News Director, West Martin. Jesse Grubb is our engineer. For Blooming Out and WFHB, I'm Frankie
1: Presslaff. I'm Alex Ashkin. And I'm Rachel Jones. Tune in next week for a brand new Blooming Out. Every Thursday from 6 to 7 on WFHB, volunteer-powered community radio.
5: Blooming Out, Indiana's only LGBTQ plus radio program, airs every Thursday evening here on WFHB at 5.30 p.m., You can also stream us 24 hours a day, seven days a week on WFHB.org or BloomingOut.com. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week to Blooming Out.